Hello and welcome to Half-Stack Data Science, the show about data science in the real world. In this episode, we bring you another interview in our series called The Orthogonals, where we showcase people who took a somewhat unusual path to data science. In this episode, we spoke to Joanna Wang. Joanna is a data aficionado with a passion for education. Her ambition is to help people demystify the world of data and make analytics second nature while having fun. Having worked both in strategy consulting and industry, she's had projects across retail, wholesale, supply chain, and financial services. In her last eight years of experience, she spent most of her time doing financial modeling, building bespoke data analytics products, and wrangling data, a lot of it. This has required her to not only be able to technically develop solutions, but also understand the wider business context and relate to people's needs, which she tries to embed in her teaching style. We spoke with Joanna about a variety of topics, including how to incorporate data science into the business world, the state of data science education, what skills you need to be a data scientist, and which of those skills are easier to teach or can even be taught at all. To give you a teaser, she summarized this beautifully when she said, no amount of code is going to tell you how to think. Please enjoy our conversation with Joanna. Today, we've got Joanna Wang with us. Hi, Joanna. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, nice to be here. So I'm going to start with the question that we throw at everyone. What is your job title, if you have one? And how does that contrast with what you really do all day? Right. Well, technically, I'm a data instructor, which is pretty much in the name. I teach people how to do data things. Now, what that entails on a day-to-day basis could be, you know, ranging from what kind of charts should you build for data visualization to how do you write Python or even what kind of machine learning model you should pick. So pretty much all across the board, working with people who might already work in the industry, but want to upskill to people who have got nothing to do with data and actually realize that this is the future and they want to get into it. And so why is that the particular thing that you do in the data space? So obviously you, you, you'll have a data background, right? Of various colors, which we'll get into, but why, why is this the thing that you're doing now? This is actually a pretty long journey, in my view. That's what we're here for. That's literally what we're here for. So (laughs) (laughs) So just either start at the beginning or work backwards, whatever, whatever makes more sense. Yeah, I've come pretty much full circle. I started out as wanting to be a banker. Then I realized actually I probably wanted to do something good for the world and decided to study politics instead. And I specialized in international development, you know, to go and work in the field and help people only to, you know, graduate and realize that obviously I couldn't help anyone because I didn't have any skills. So, okay, I thought, right, I need to go and get some skills. I am good with numbers. So obviously, let's study accounting. So I spent three years doing that, studying accounting, doing, you know, work experience, studying, doing exams. And of course, when I graduated... You realized you still couldn't help people. <laughs> yes, as well. <laughs> And I actually didn't want to be an accountant, naturally, right? As uh, a lot of people will agree with. But in that journey, I did realize that what I loved was working with data. Well, Excel at the time, right? So lots and lots of Excel. But I just found it so soothing. And I just loved being completely like head down, writing formulas. And I thought, okay, you know what? Surely there must be a job out there that uses a lot of data I can write as many formulas as I want, but doesn't entail yet another month end. And this was just about the time when data science was becoming very popular. 
you know, you had the whole quote of being the sexiest job of the 21st century. So I thought, okay, I, I think I can do this. I've done a bit of econometrics before. I've done all the maths. Let's do it. And that was pretty much it. It's been, uh, I've never looked back since. So what was your programming background at that point? Was it all just VBA and Excel formulas or had you been exposed to it in, in any other way? Not at all. Uh, only Excel. Well, I did have three months of VBA as part of my university course through which I built Sudoku in VBA. I was quite proud of that, <laughs> but that was it. So just to give you a bit of context, I, I signed up for training. So I looked up G General Assembly online, found it, signed up literally like a day before the course. I rock up and they go like, okay, now everybody open Python. And I'm there sitting thinking, what do you mean? The animal, what, what do you mean? <laughs> if you haven't heard of it before in that context, it is. It's a, it's a weird request. <laughs> exactly. You know, like I have a book on my uh, bookshelf, which is a Python cookbook. And whenever like friends who don't work in tech come by, they're like, what's that on your shelf? You know, it's just so far removed. I hadn't thought of that, but actually Python cookbook is, is quite a terrifying thing to have on your bookshelf if you don't know what it means. Yeah. And with the illustration as well. So you're saying, Joanna, that you did not train as a computer scientist, but nevertheless, because you love working with data and you get a real kick out of it, and it sounds like you enjoy immersing yourself in a question and, and digging to the bottom of that question, that's what drove you to accumulate these skills. And at some point you realized, oh, I actually have the portfolio of skills needed to not only be a credible working data scientist, but teach people in these other things. Yes, that's kind of the direction that I took. Obviously, a lot of things happened in the meantime where I did manage to move into working in data. So it wasn't directly data science to begin with. I was very fortunate at that point because I had financial modeling, although I didn't have data science. And I thought, okay, I can either quit my job and start from scratch and become an intern, or maybe I could go somewhere that is kind of related and move laterally. This is the advice that both I think David and I give to everyone who asks us that version of that question. It's start working with data more in your job right now. Otherwise, as you said, you have to start again. Indeed. So I thought, okay, what is it that I already know and can do? And then I just want to get a bit closer. So luckily I was hired as a financial modeler for PwC, but it just so happened that this fell under the data team. And so just by being part of the data team, I eventually managed to get myself onto actual data analytics and data science projects. And that's where I picked up all the actual day-to-day -day working with all of these tools. This is a theme, David, isn't it, that's come through so strongly with other guests this season as well, that it's really validating the reason why we decided to talk to people who come from these allegedly unusual backgrounds. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you've had several goes at starting different careers, as long as you have some interest in the thing. And most importantly, the ability to master those skills and turn skills that you do have into other neighboring skills. That's the requirement. That's way more important than to have a particular degree in your, in your past. And that's what I was going to ask actually, Joanna, about what you said. So you said you had financial modeling, but not data science. Was there any overlap after you got into data science? Because it feels like financial modeling is just like extrapolating things with numbers and a lot of data science is that. So did you find any overlap? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Well, the thing is the type of financial modeling that I was doing was very much assumption-based and not that much data, to be honest. So going from that to machine learning is still quite a stretch. But of course, 
the methodology is the same, right? You still have to get all of your data, combine it, join it, clean it, prepare it. So all of those skills were already my foundation, which meant that I just needed to latch on the machine learning part and the programming part. So that helped. That's interesting. I, I was going to say maybe controversially that a lot of our work is still assumption-based, even though we claim to be data people. <laughs> like, I mean, yes, we have a lot of data, but... Assumptions are data too, right? If you make them clear. Well, exactly. If you put them in a CSV, assumptions are also data. What I'm hearing there, Joanna, is you had a background in taking some known things or some assumed things and extrapolating some useful information about the world that hasn't happened yet. So you weren't scared of making pr predictions of some kind and you acquired an ability to collapse something complex down into something simpler, right, to make it easier to understand. Yeah, in the end of the day, what I've found, obviously now having worked in the field of data for quite a few years, that the most valuable skill is communication translating a generic you know business question that is in english into actually okay how am i going to go and code this up what kind of data am i going to need and that doesn't require either very advanced tools or very complex models but it's that link that gets lost a lot i feel did you realize that quite early on you know you said oh you needed to upskill all these things in data science when you moved into this this other field and then then you realized that a lot of those technical things are not the real hard part or the real valuable part of the job. I mean, how did that feel after after all that time upskilling yourself to, to realize that <laughs> the technical skills aren't the meat and potatoes of data science in a way? Yeah, well, I obviously I only realized this looking backwards, right? In the beginning, it was really tough. I spent a lot of time, a lot of uh, sweat and tears. There were actually lots of tears. Um, trying to just crack it because I pretty much had to learn on the job and that entailed a lot of trial and error, headbutting, all of those things. But, you know, obviously I learned many lessons that I'll, you know, of errors that I'll never, I'll never do again. I shall never divide by a zero again in my life. <laughs> but it was only after acquiring all of those skills, obviously, that I look back and go, well, actually, most of the time, I, it's not that I'm coding very complex things but I do need to speak to my stakeholders all the time. And that's very important. Do you think some of that struggle that you went through is, is kind of necessary to becoming a good data person? I think you need to have really good managers, like really inspire managers that will question you rather than tell you what to do. That makes a huge difference because like when you're young, when you're starting out, allegedly you can code up anything, but what you should be coding comes down to you know that valuable linking piece. And what happens a lot of the time is, or what I see in data teams is someone comes up and they create a whole lot of tickets and, you know, this is what you need to write. This is the feature we're looking for. Go and build it. But it's not a larger discussion as to why that is valuable for the business. That thinking has been done by someone else, not usually the person who's actually writing it up. So I feel that if the people who are coding up were part of those conversations as well, everybody would win. Why do you think those people are not included? Maybe it's just the structure and the hierarchy that they have in certain companies, or usually they want to shield technical people from having to deal with a lot of politics. And that is what I think is the main driver. How many technical people choose to become technical people in order to be shielded? <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot, right? And I get it. I used to be like that yeah. as well. I think at least what I've realized over the years is that you're probably going to be fired eventually if you don't get stuck into the politics because 
if you're waiting for people to tell you what to do, either the company doesn't know or the company just goes, well, you're really expensive for someone who just answers tickets that we write for you. For sure. And it's interesting because it's a lot about psychology and behavior, because what happens a lot is that people come to us and say, I want to see these numbers. But then when you start digging a little bit more, it's like, but why? Like, what's up with these numbers in particular? Then they go, oh, actually, I'm not thinking about it. Maybe I want something else. So, so many times what they ask for is not necessarily what they need. You tell me what numbers I want desperately. But they also sometimes ask for specific numbers as in it needs to be 42. Yes. If, if you need that, I mean, I can just write it on a piece of paper and send you a photo. Yes, but why is it 42? Tell me. Usually it's because there's some financial model or some kind of sales conversation and the number they need to hit is is whatever. Yeah. So I was going to ask that based on that, is there anything that's missing from data science education? So, you know, we spend a lot of time with this autonomy trying to figure out what to work on. And we've said that, okay, you have to do that on the job. But as an instructor... Is there anything that you add to your curricula or is there something that you think is missing in general from the way we think about teaching data science that could make a better generation of future data scientists? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the first thing I tell my students is that any of the stuff they're about to learn, they could do with pen and paper. Arguably, it would take quite a while, but it's beside tooling. It's the way you think. And that, you know, no amount of code is going to tell you how to think. So you know, all the stuff that we teach about finding a good question, making sure that you have a hypothesis that are based on domain knowledge rather than just, hey, here are some variables that are correlated, just goes a long way because tools come and go. You know, today's Python, who knows what tomorrow is going to be, but it's just being able to create that train of thought. So I always ask them, okay, before you get to the code, tell me what you're thinking. Because if you can't explain it to me in English, there's no point going and uh, like moving into code. So that's always the basis, no matter if I'm teaching Excel or SQL or Python or whatever tool it is. If you can't draw it to me on a piece of paper, then yeah. And what's the distribution of answers that you get to that challenge? I mean, everybody nods, <laughs> but then they're in a very particular context where they've paid to pick up that technical skill. So I understand their concern. Oh, another repeating theme. <laughs> I was just going to say, it, I've, as an instructor myself, sometimes I've literally been asked, like, can we not just do more algorithms, please? And then at that point, I just think I've really just done something wrong here because that is completely the wrong question. I mean, it's a fair question, to be honest, because if they already have that solid foundation, they can just pick up the technical skills and then in their own time or through their own experience, like embed that together. But it is wrong to think that just because you'll become proficient in Python, scikit-learn, you'll become a good data scientist. So hopefully, yeah, we can put this message out there and actually tell people that it's fine if you're using Excel. You know, it's fine if you're using SQL. Just having the right tool for the right job, but be tool agnostic. That's what I usually tell them. Do, do you have a sense of what backgrounds people come from on your various courses who end up being maybe the more successful future data scientists? Is there any pattern there that you think about the kinds of backgrounds that come to those courses and the kinds that then just drop out and don't follow it or versus the people who then actually make a career of it? It's really interesting you ask that. So I teach a mix of things. So from 
data analytics to just data visualization to data science. So obviously the people who come are quite different, but I would say the most important factor as to why they succeed or not is not whether they have an American background. It's actually whether they are compassionate about themselves. So they're learning new skills that are super, super hard. And the people who are really tough on themselves are the ones who tend to drop because they can't live with the uncertainty and the sense of failure. But inevitably, when you're learning how to code, you need to try and fail because you can't learn unless you fail. So those are the characteristics that I see across people who become very successful in this field. When you say compassionate about themselves, I thought you'd misspoke and you, you'd meant to say passionate about the subject, which is just a <laughs> generic thing people always say about every subject. But I can just see lots of reverberations of what you just said. That's quite, quite profound. And if you think about it, not being comfortable with uncertainty and finding imperfect answers to poorly framed questions, that's a hell of a place to be if you're going into data. Yeah. And it's really apparent with code because code is unforgiving. It's either right or wrong. And you need to live with that feeling. You need to live with that feeling that you might be wrong 10 times until you hit the right answer. But if you don't try it 10 times, you'll never get to the answer. And it's that attitude, that mentality that makes helps people succeed. David, how is that different from software development where, where you came from? Is there that same problem or issue? Yeah, that's interesting because I was thinking that it was going to be more about people having misconceptions, like having to know all the algorithms to a mathematical proof level before you're allowed to use them. I thought that was going to be the main barrier. So I guess I'm not surprised because I do remember people on my course. So my going back way back, my original degree was in computer games programming, which was in C++, which is even worse don't learn it unless you really care about that sort of thing because it, it it's even less forgiving than Python or R and, and people dropped out like flies because they realized that this is really complicated and hard. So that's, I don't actually have a good view of people who, who go straight into sort of more enterprise software development, but I would have thought that data science is particularly scary for people because of the misconceptions about how hard and mathematical it is. I mean, Joanna, from what you said, it suggests that it's not just that, it's it's just a general fear of computers telling them they're wrong. In data, you can never know everything. And if you come from a field, so for example, for me, it was really hard transitioning from accounting, right? Because in accounting, everything adds up. Everything is always very neat. You add it up twice separately, and exactly. then you add those up, and it's zero. It's great. The truth is self-confirming. Exactly. I'm horizontally, I sum vertically, life's good. I, I'm done, job done, I'm going home, you know? And then jumping into a world where it's just, okay, I'm getting an answer. Is my answer right? No clue. Okay, I can tweak this, I tweak that. Carry on tweaking. I could carry on tweaking for the rest of my life and still not know. And at some point you need to live with your answer, right? You need to pick one and live with it. That is very uncomfortable if you think about it. That is not something that you get in most jobs. So it's that feeling of uncertainty, that willingness to try and accepting that you just can't possibly know everything. So yeah, being a bit more compassionate, I think helps. That's that's such a great way to, to summarize. I think something that we've maybe realized over time slowly that sometimes a, a sort of half crappy answer is better than nothing and actually to, to help the business answer their particular question, it's often enough to just ballpark something that looks like a right answer 
gets them in the right direction. And and very rarely do you have to go to the hundred percent of get into all the complicated complicated technical tiny little minutiae of of let's get everything right about this answer. Businesses don't care about that. They don't move like that. They just want something that's vaguely correct that they can go off with. Is that, is that something you can successfully incorporate into your teaching to like, obviously it's hard to mark students' work because there is no correct answer, but is, is there anything you do to sort of try and guide them to the fact that as long as you can explain your answer, it's, it's the best you can do? Yeah. So that's the approach that we take. And also something that is very particular to tech very particular to you know programming and these fields that uh, you don't have all the answers and I, I remember that in the beginning when I started teaching I used to be mortified if someone asked me something and I didn't know the direct answer straight away and I didn't remember the syntax of every single excel formula in my head or every shortcut I would just go oh, my god they must think I'm a fraud you know who am I why am I standing here And then through the years and also obviously watching other instructors as well, you know what? Own it. The first thing I say is I don't know everything. So have no shame of just opening Google and go, okay, how do I write this formula? And be, hey, everybody, Google is there. There's no point memorizing everything. You don't need to know everything, but you need to know where to find everything. And this helps them change their um, mind frame. That in itself, so this is even before you get to code, already puts them more at ease with the concept of not knowing everything and being able to get closer step by step. Like you were saying that, okay, I'm going to point you towards the right direction. Might not be the best model, the most accurate model, but it's better than finger in the air. So you'll you'll get there step by step. I think that sort of mentality really helps. You don't directly teach how to do the soft skills part of the job, but you upfront tell them the realities of the job, which is there is no real answer. It's always uncertain. Every answer you come up with will have assumptions behind it. As long as that's the thing you can communicate and discuss with your stakeholders, you'll probably come to some agreement about what the answer should be and everybody's happy. Maybe there's something there about rather than explicitly having a communication module, which I think is probably not ever going to work, right? I think that's right. So from our collective experience of these people talking, we learned these things along the way doing other things and then converted that and other things into data science careers. So it would be crazy to think that you could compress that way of learning things into a module, particularly calling it a standalone module, communication with stakeholders. Yeah, I don't think it should be a standalone module, but just embed it in every either exercise or every practice. The idea is always being able to question, okay, you chose this. Why did you choose that? Because X, okay, did you consider Y? Yes, no. If yes, what made you go with X and not Y? If you didn't, you know, maybe consider it. So using the methodology rather than the content, I think makes a huge difference. There's a a lesson there also for people leading data teams or coaching data teams or shielding data teams that you're going to have to give people chances to be questioned by stakeholders about that thing. Otherwise, how the hell are they going to develop these skills if they're if they're behind this shield and some remote person is doing all of the discussion of all of the work? A, it slows it down, but it means that those shielded people will never gain these skills and they'll continually be underdeveloped in the thing that certainly all the people on on this episode agree is the is the most missing and the greatest sort of superpower of, of a good data person. Absolutely. Although 
this is very tricky, right? Because you need to be pretty confident in what you're doing, or at least in yourself. And the, the nature of the job isn't solid, right? It just, everything depends, a lot of things change. You know, it was correct yesterday, it's not correct today. And so it's very hard for, for someone to absorb that uncertainty and then yet have to communicate it to other people. So it's probably not a great idea to take someone fresh into the role and, and put them in front of a, a board member. No. But if you've got any level of seniority in a data team, you've got to think about how you help pull everyone else up the ladder behind you and, yeah. and create opportunities to have that exposure in a way where that key thing you said, they can feel confident dipping their toe in that, in that water because otherwise it'll be just like all those experiences that make people really hard on themselves where they didn't know the answer to the question that the board member just kind of rattled off. They maybe didn't care about the question, but the person will feel terrible that they didn't have the number to hand. So you want to avoid that kind of discussion and, and give people a nice slow ramp up. Exactly. I think shadowing really helps. You see how other people communicate. You see someone more senior handling situations and that really sets the example. So first of all, obviously, it's nice to know that there'll always be someone there for you, but always just but also just mimicking. Say, okay, I see how this person behaves in a meeting, how they act. So in my experience for me, spending time in consulting was super valuable from that perspective because you're constantly in front of the client you're constantly in teams where you have to state your point of view you have to kind of justify what you're up to but i can appreciate that that doesn't happen so much in the industry potentially so do you think it helps to be a data scientist if you have a slightly controversial personality the reason I'm asking that is because some of what you alluded to suggests that you need to be comfortable telling people that, yes, answers change over time. Numbers aren't reality. Truth doesn't exist. You know, you need to have these sort of slightly lofty, controversial... And you're going to have to tell it to finance and accounting people. <laughs> and you're going to have to tell it to a CFO who wants to hear 42. Do you, do you think a personality trait of being a little bit controversial is is helpful i mean that's a maybe a strange question but what, what do you think i'm not sure about controversial i think definitely thick-skinned yeah sometimes you just gotta go in and be like it is what it is do you think data science has a place in trying to guide the business as well as the business guiding what the data scientists do because something that i see at, at work for us especially because sean is my manager so i see him do it is like almost standing up to board members to say look we should probably be doing this instead and that comes from obviously years of built trust you can't walk in on day one and tell the business how to do things but i still feel like over time there's maybe a place for data science to be a bit controversial and rebellious and and try and change the way that businesses think about decision making and numbers and reality almost i don't know is that is that too philosophical or is there do you think there's room for that kind of thing no certainly the good and bad thing about data scientists is that they're kind of like you know the geeky kids the cutting edge people so it's okay if they think a bit outside the box but we'll hear them out and so taking advantage of that and departing from what is the traditional or what is the, you know, the status quo, then you might be able to shift the needle a bit. Because that's not a traditional data scientist remit. I've never seen that on a job description, but it, it feels like it, 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 there's an opportunity there maybe to do, I guess maybe it's just education 
along the way is educating your stakeholders in this slightly different way of thinking about things. For sure. I think it very much depends on the culture of the organization and how the teams are set up. So a structure that I've seen that I think works quite well is, okay, we've got a pool of data scientists, but we've got David works on marketing problems. And so you're almost like their personal data advisor. You work with them to try and solve their problems rather than just being, oh, we're marketing. We want to find out number 42. Off you go, David, go and calculate it for us. So that sense of partnership and advisory really changes things. It's a great idea in theory. <laughs> I'm smiling because it's something we've we've sort of th thought about and partially implemented and it, to, to limited, well, I guess mixed success, but still it, the idea, we, we had a similar idea, I think. Again, it's, it's linked to what we were talking about the whole time, right, about linking what we do as data scientists to the value of, of the business. It's, it, it's just making that relationship tighter and not, this whole ivory tower thing that people are always scared about and talking about. Indeed, and I, I believe that having someone dedicated who knows their data inside out, who knows the struggles that they go through on a day-to-day -day basis, who knows, you know, why, you know, what would make a campaign successful or not, also gives them that added credibility and trust. Because in the end of the day, it's all about trust, right? So you're going to spit out some numbers and they need to make some decisions based on them. Should they even listen to you? I think that's why it's such a great career path to be in one of those subject matter areas and then realize that you really like working with data and then from that point go off and become the data expert of that team. Doesn't mean you will always be working with that kind of data on those kind of problems, but as a way to get into the field, it's just you can't think of better training or a better springboard than already being right in the middle of the problem solving. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel that, you know, we, we train a lot of junior, you know, budding data scientists and sometimes you ask them okay wh what would you like to go into afterwards and the answer is like oh I'll, I'll just do anything that is data related i'll get any job that has the data in the title i'll clean anyone's data yeah. yes exactly and i'm like i mean yes it's true but i don't know if you go into a betting company they have tons of data but are you really passionate about it because you're going to be looking at this day in day out this is going to be your life if you're not passionate about it, if you're not interested in it, why are you there? So you do need that level of interest in the field, in the day-to-day -day you're working with, because otherwise you don't have that curiosity. And, you know, that's what data science is all about, right? You want to know more rather than just answering questions. Do you think that's the future of data science, the specialization by business area rather than technical specialization? Because, uh, you know, the roles come out like machine learning engineer, Okay, so that's obviously a more specific job than data scientists. So that could be one path that data science as a field in the future takes. Uh, or do you think it's more realistic to have marketing data scientists, automotive data scientists, heaven forbid, or you know whatever areas which are aligned to business areas and the ways that businesses do things rather than different technical fields? For data scientists, certainly the first way, because you need that domain knowledge and you need to be passionate about the problem you're trying to solve. Because sure, you can just go and write a model, but if you're not that interested, it's just a moot point. More technical roles like uh, data engineering, for example, and even potentially machine learning engineering maybe doesn't matter so much because you're mostly trying to optimize something. The underlying content of it, I'm not sure if it makes that much of a difference. But when it comes to interpreting, right, you want to translate something, you need to get the meaning out of something. Yeah, I think the business 
alignment makes sense. Yeah, I just I just don't see a future where people have jobs like clustering data scientist or maybe I don't know even NLP data scientist. It just feels like a a weird way to specialize. It's like saying I'm a builder who specializes in hammers. To to quote an analogy that <laughs> previous guest said, you know, it's it it just doesn't sound right. Whereas if you were a builder who builds forts, that makes a lot more sense because then you can specialize in something that people actually want. Maybe not forts, but you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So what, one of the themes on this series is all about orthogonality, about like bringing all these different backgrounds in into data science. Is there anything outside of your work that you think has influenced your data science career or has influenced the way you do your job that is otherwise completely unrelated? Absolutely. You know what? This is actually something that I revisit time and time again. Ironically, I feel that the skill that has helped me the most throughout my entire career is being able to speak in public. And I used to work on TV and I also was a dance teacher where I had to shout at the top of my lungs. And you'd be surprised how having to stand in front of a group of people, you know, you're on the spot, you're potentially being roasted, <laughs> you're being grilled on your technical skills or whatever it is, but being able to have a straight face through it, that takes a lot. And that came from my acting and um, dancing days. How funny is that? I hadn't really thought of that in that way, that actually any role that puts you in front of people in slightly uncomfortable positions, it really is data science training at the end of the day. <laughs> Well, we had Andrea, who is a fire, fire breathing or fire eating. I forget. I, I said the wrong one. And it was some kind of fire related circus performer. Wow. And Peter, who trained as a classical guitarist to quite a high level. Wow. So I think, yeah, again, what better exposure practice for that difficult work of confronting stakeholders, controversially exactly. or not, than having bared your soul in front of a large audience. Yeah, exactly. Because in the end of the day, you might have the most accurate, you know, most complex model, but if you can't communicate it to other people, it just stays in the drawer and that helps nobody. So being able to communicate, being able to tell that story in a compelling manner, that's what makes the world go round, I believe. So people who haven't been on TV, how can they acquire that skill? If we just said that, you know, you really have to have been on TV or be a fire-breathing circus performer or a <laughs> trained classical guitarist to, to be a good data scientist. If you haven't had those opportunities, how can people get them? Or does it even matter? Is it is it just about getting those opportunities however you can? Yeah, you can make your own opportunities, right? At the moment, anywhere you are, wherever you are, you know, organize a meetup, do a Zoom conference call with other people, just being in front of people will not only build your confidence, but also increase your communication skills. So as many opportunities as you can try and grab those, even if it's explaining data science to your friends or I don't know, vlogging or anything like that, basically anything that usually makes people want to cringe and not want to do, that is the feeling that you have to embrace and do. <laughs> and that's what's going to put you out there. So the, the train of thought there is communication is the most important skill in data land and you need to be good at communication and you can get good at communication by getting those butterflies in your stomach any way you can. Could be about data, could be about something else. 
Exactly. But until you've got the butterflies and worked out how to not throw up yes. because of that, <laughs> push through it, communicate your point, fail, 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 fail less, fail less, succeed. That's the way to do it. You know, if, you know, if you believe, Joanna, that the communication is the most important skill, you have to practice communicating to be able to communicate. No one is a born communicator. You can't read that in a book. Exactly. And it's interactive, right? You also can't do it alone. <laughs> yeah. It has to be. Um, I really like the concept of the butterflies because I know that people react differently. There are different personalities out in the world. But everyone has the butterflies inevitably. Don't, but don't turn, let those turn into fear and rather use those and turn them into excitement, into a challenge where you go, okay, I'm getting the butterflies, but you know what? I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to do it. That really changes your trajectory. Because in the beginning, I was obviously like really scared as well. And then after a while, I think my turning point was when I realized that even if I went out there and it didn't go perfectly, it was okay. I mean, sure, you make a mistake here and there, but no one's going to die. And then the next time you go, you feel a little bit, a little less scared and do it more and more and more. And then one day you're like, okay, it's okay. I can just go do it. And that's why. If you talk to performers and, and masters of these kinds of arts or crafts, usually they depend on the butterflies to give a great performance. And that if they weren't nervous about how it was going to go, they wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. And it, it links right back to what we we're saying about being comfortable with uncertainty and having to be able to communicate that to stakeholders. If it ever got to the point where we had no uncertainty about whether our answer was any good or whether people would believe it, we would have to have been automated away by machines or robots or AIs or something. Yeah. And so we wouldn't have a reason to do our job. Um, so it's actually... You've got to ride that wave and realize that even the very best people or those who look the very best at that are nervous before they go out on that stage, before they give that presentation, when they click run. And if it if that uncertainty wasn't there, it'd just be really dangerous and lead to a lot of arrogance in the way people work with data because they just assumed they were right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Absolutely, that's a great point. Our, our last question is typically as as someone who comes from one of these unconventional backgrounds, what would your advice be to other people coming from similar or other unconventional backgrounds? I feel like we've covered that just now. Is, would that be your number one advice is, is get better at communicating? Or is there anything else that you tell people to, to prepare them for their data science journey who, who come to you with backgrounds that, that seem completely unrelated or, or they're worried that it's completely unrelated? Hmm. I say, I always say, just try. And then you'll see. But you need to try because up until that point, you don't know. This is with code. This is with presenting. This is with, you know, even voicing your thoughts. Tell me, what's the worst that can happen, right? But you need to get out of the shell. And the only way to get out of the shell is by trying. So always keep trying. That's a great note to end on, I think. 
Um, yeah, you heard it here first. Uh, get out of the shell, not get into the shell and do all of your work in the in the Unix shell. Yeah, you're right though. Until people try it, it's just an untested hypothesis that I may be good or bad at this. Exactly, but with everything, right? Because I, when I started, I was shit scared because I, I, anything that I read that had data science in it, it for me was like, oh my god, this is like on a pedestal, and I'm never gonna get it, or this is probably way beyond me. But then I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to read it and see. I was, oh, okay, well, you know what? I've seen something a little bit similar to this. I did. I don't understand everything, you know. Like I said, when I first started my course at General Assembly, I spent my whole 10 weeks copying and pasting code that I just did not know what was for. So eventually you'll get it. But if had I not done the copy and pasting, I would not have learned it. Uh, obviously, they were pretty painful 10 weeks because, I mean, no one wants to feel dumb, right? But you need to start somewhere. So you were comfortable going, well, not comfortable. So you were okay with going pretty deep into the deep end there in a in a ten week course, assuming certain knowledge, and you didn't know that Python was not a snake in this context. And yeah. and, and now you teach that same course to people. Yeah, yeah, for right. sure. Yeah. I remember vividly someone came on the first day and said, Are we covering so so and so algorithm? And I went in my head, What is an algorithm? <laughs> So, you know, it's always a journey. Well, great. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Joanna. Uh, the final, final question is where can people find you online if they want to follow what you do or just keep up with you? Do you have a social media presence you want people to know about? <laughs> well, this is a wonder because I am terrible at social media, but certainly on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm there. And that's about it. It's quite ironic because I'm a data person, but I try to generate as little data as I can online. That's good. I think you're, you're one of the very few people who, for, for whom LinkedIn is the primary source of contact. So <laughs> finally, some, some use cases out there. Very professional. Very professional. Exactly. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. It's been great. My pleasure. Thanks, Joanna. It was lovely.